Welcome to Disruptive Successor, a show for next generation leaders in family businesses and entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the status quo and take their existing business to a whole new level. We all know that what got us here isn't going to get us there. This show will provide inspiration, advice, and resources to help you create massive impact. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Hi, it's Jonathan Goldhill, and welcome back to another episode of the Disruptive Successor Show. Today, we're going to be talking about transitions, succession, and exit planning. My guest today is Lori Barkman, who calls herself a business transition Sherpa. Her firm, Small Dot Big, advises owners on having more valuable, sellable businesses, and as a partner with Stony Hill Advisors, a mergers and acquisitions firm. She guides them through the complex process of letting it go. Lori is the former CEO of a $100 million revenue company with an exit to a Fortune 50 company with more than 25 years of C-suite and award-winning marketing expertise. She provides actionable perspectives to drive sustainable value. Lori, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Jonathan. It's great to be with you today. Awesome. So, uh, hey, why don't we just get started? Be you know, we're going to be talking about transition, succession planning, how to prepare yourself for business transition, how to value your company, uh, maybe some of the mistakes when valuing, maybe some of the mistakes when selling your company. But like, people always probably start with like, why should I listen to you? And so, so you know, people who are are critical. Uh, or suspect, especially business owners who are thinking like, you're going to sell my business. I mean, I know my business better than anyone knows my business. Like, you know, what have you done? What have you known? So like, tell us a little bit more because you can brag a little bit more than what I did. I mean, that's a pretty impressive exit, I would <laughs> certainly say. And that's a pretty impressive company. But like, what's your educational background? You know, how did you get to do what you do? And, you know, how did you get here? Oh, sure. Happy to share some of that with you. I got my start in business and I like to call it the psychology of business. My undergraduate degree is from Cornell University and my degree is industrial labor relations. And I went into human resource management. So I call that the psychology of business when you're working Mm -hmm. with people and teams to help make things better uh, and be more productive and happy and ultimately be profitable. But ultimately, then I switched gears and went to Carnegie Mellon University, got my MBA at the Tupper School of Business, and I focused a lot on marketing and technology and entrepreneurship. And I got my start working in startups after I graduated with my MBA. And I think what's really interesting and unique about my background is that I went from Big Co. I was with Ingersoll Rand Company right out of school in HR to startups back and forth. So throughout my career, I have had the fortune of working with small, nimble, agile companies and understanding what that looks like and feels like from an entrepreneurial perspective to going to large global corporate environments where you have more resources, more well-established processes. And I've brought some of those learnings back and forth. And then ultimately, after a career, long career, in marketing, focusing on the digital space and all things process improvement related to that, but top line growth as a primary focus, but eventually found my way into a CEO role, as you mentioned in my bio. Mm -hmm. And I was an outside hire for a third generation company. And the vision was to have a a bench, right? There's a long-term succession plan 
because for this particular family, the the two sons were not interested in being part of the operations for the business. And they needed to have a pretty deep and wide bench for running the company. And they already was a nice bench before I got there, but they wanted someone like me who had more entrepreneurial experience because a third generation company. And at that time, it was about, I don't know, it's called 110 years old. Sometimes you get further and further away from the entrepreneurial spirit. You get so uh, it's important to be structured and it's important to have that structure. And that's important for growth and stability, but also there can be a nimbleness and, a, and, and an eye towards technology and process improvement and to bring in from the outside. So that's what I had brought into that experience. Going through the M&A process from the inside was also hugely important. The playbook of the global company that bought us, of course, you don't run into that all the time, but seeing how they did things and under, experiencing what we did as a management team to, uh, to go through the sale you know, it was a complicated process, but we also had to run our business day to day. So I can empathize with business owners for sure on that point. And a lot of times for business owners, this is the only time they'll ever do a transaction. And they're really good at running their company and building their company. And just like when they have to surround themselves with with talent to help them do that, it's important for them to realize that they'll want to have the same kind of talent around them on the sell side or to the to the the transaction side, whatever that exit is for them and their succession. So that's really how I, I transitioned. Eventually, I, I when I after I left um, after the the merger and acquisition phase, I was there a year and a half as an officer of the new company and uh, the acquiring company. And then I went into private equity, and so I kind of got more involved on the deal side. And I guess if I admit it, I'm a little bit of a deal junkie. I like the pace. I like the 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 A to Z nature of having something and seeing it through. And the marketing side comes out really well in mergers and acquisitions because we need to package and sell the the benefits and the the, uh, the opportunity for this company. But then there's all the other things that blend into it. And so having a being a CEO, a former CEO and um being in startups, being in large companies, all these pieces that put together, I really can take the process to to different companies. So my job now is I've got a process and I can bring that process to the business center as opposed to them trying to figure out the process on their own. And that's a really important thing. And so I gather up all my experiences, all my certifications, not only my MBA, but I'm a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor. I have a certificate in exit planning. And I also have a certification from the Value Builder System, which is a system I know you're familiar with, Jonathan. Yes. It's all about a, a system and a methodology for, for working with business owners to help them maximize the value of their business and help them see things that they're not seeing. And uh, so that's the long and the short of it. Yeah, you have an impressive resume, I have to say. And kudos to you. Uh, um, being a woman as CEO in a in a third generation family business, I think is, um, I mean, being a man or a woman in that role. But, you know, it's great to see more women CEOs, I have to just say. Um, what was it like to be brought in to a third generation family business and be an outsider? How, well, I was how, brought like, in to run. I was brought in to run a division. Mm -hmm. And so there already was a culture of outside leadership. Okay. In the business, I was certainly not the first outside hire, mm -hmm. and I was part of a retirement for the business unit. So the prior, the incumbent was was retiring, and that was his intention. Mm -hmm. And so that helped pave the way because it wasn't a shock to the system. There was a really, this is what I would say for anyone considering succession, is to be at the right time, you know, communicating what the plan is, and mm -hmm. that that way, when there was a recruiting process whether it was my peers or whether it was um, people who other stakeholders in, in the company who were involved or board members. I interviewed with a th good 360, you know, team of, of folks from, again, whether it was my peers, people who reported to me and people above me, including my boss, of course, and then, and then board members. And that was a very comprehensive interview process. So what did that feel like? Yeah, it was daunting for sure. Um, it took about six months to get through all the pieces of the, of the process. They even had an executive coach working with them. I did all kinds of assessments, the 
DISC and the, I can't remember the alphabet soup, but there were two or three different uh, personality assessments that I needed to take. They really were doing a, a very thorough job on the fit. So by the time I got there, there was a great anticipation of, oh, who is this person? And, you know, and what we could what we could accomplish together. Um, but, yeah, no, it's not an easy thing when there's a very well-established community, especially, you know, you acknowledge that I was. Yeah, I was uh, the only woman in the room for a period of time. Wow. <laughs> uh, over time, that changed. But I was the only woman in the room for a while. And. But I had been used to that. I had been in manufacturing. I had yeah. been in technology. Yeah. So I never really, and that never really uh, was weighed on me. Socially, I was always, I'll go to the bar, I'll play golf, you know, whatever. Mm. It, it never held me back. But it certainly was good to get more uh, diversity in the room over time. I think it's great. And I think it's important. And, you know, in some states, and you can speak to this probably better than I, but they're legislating more women in the boardroom and, and, you know, as officers. And I, I'm not so keen on the idea of legislating it. Um, I'd rather it just happen because of an enlightened self-interest, a, a, a greater, whatever, a heightened state of consciousness, awareness that we need balance, we need diversity. In, um, but I'm not big on sort of affirmative action type programs. It feels... Um, uh, well, we're not going to go down that road. It's a little reaction. Yeah. No, what I like to how I like to describe it, Jonathan, is a diversity of thought and people's yes. experiences and perspectives is what makes us diverse. I don't really look at us on the surface and say this is a diverse board. You can have Correct. people of different genders and um, ethnicities, but they all think exactly the same way. I think we benefit our stakeholders, our shareholders benefit when we challenge ourselves appropriately because we're bringing different things to the table. And that's what I like to do with my clients. And that's what I like to do in general. I'm a board advisor for a privately held company, a second generation construction firm, and they created a new board of advisors. We launched as a board of advisors last October. So at this time of recording, it's, mm -hmm. it's coming up on a year almost. Mm-hmm. And it's a startup board. So you have, you know, that that dynamic. But I, I appreciate that this second generation was trying to do something different. They knew they needed some outside guidance. And when they went through the interview, I went through the interview process. Uh, they chose three of us and they did. They looked at our skill sets. They looked at what we brought to the table. And I can say it's definitely been an advantage to have us um, coming at things from a different perspective, because ultimately it'll help them make better decisions. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a really interesting subject I'd like to dive into more. I don't know how much you can share, but can you tell us a little bit about the size of the company, maybe uh, either revenues or employees, um, a little bit about the current leader? Are they uh, a next generation leader? And, and, you know, like what was the level of the, sophistication in the company that they decided to bring and form an outside advisory board. And I want to make this instructive to people that are listening and thinking like, should I be putting an outside advisory board? Am, am I too small? Am I too young? Am I too inexperienced? Or will they take over the direction? You know, so talk to us a little bit about how that came together with this company. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's, let's put it under the umbrella of governance. And there's two types of boards that we'll focus on, I think, to your question. There's a sure. third type, which uh, this particular company doesn't have at the moment. But, oh, I guess maybe they do if you think of it that way. All right, well, let's talk about all three. So one is a family board. Sure. Now, this this in this example, um, it's a construction company. And there are three brothers. Mm -hmm. There was a, sis a sister in the business, but they recently bought her out. Mm -hmm. The four siblings with their voting and, and each company could be a little bit different how the voting uh, shares are, are spread across the siblings and or parents and or grandparents, right? The, the generations involved in the business. So sometimes in a family board, that that's a separate type of entity, right? And they talk about different things than they might in a fiduciary board. So right. a, a board of directors has fiduciary responsibility. 
it's it's obviously most common for publicly traded entities, but it you can also see this in private companies where a private company may have um, equity or shares that are that are offered to board members. And then the third type, which is the type I'm describing from my current experience, is as an advisory board member. So we are not financially um, accountable for the business the way a fiduciary board would be. Sure. Um, but we, of course, want to provide good guidance. Um, the other difference between an advisory board and the fiduciary board, board of directors, is that um, the board of directors, their primary responsibility is hiring and firing of the CEO or the, the leadership of the company mm-hmm. for the board of advisors. They are not responsible for that. Sure. We make recommendations The the management can choose to listen to us or not. You know, we're, we're of course, they they they're we're there for a reason, but ultimately it's their choice. It's not about voting. You know, they there's no we don't have a vote to say right. they need to do what we're, we're suggesting. We're purely advisory and then they can decide. Do you think that the content of what you're talking about in the advisory board room versus the boardroom of the fiduciary uh, board of directors, do you think the conversations are fairly similar? I I mean, in terms of the content, like where you're both talking strategy, you're both talking about um, how to drive value in the business. You're talking about the CEO role and maybe even some of the C-suite or director level positions. Do you think the content's the same? I do. And I don't. I think, again, let's take a public company board, for example. Um, They will have regulatory requirements um, and financial review and all kinds of other things. Sarbanes-Oxley. I mean, all kinds of governance that may dominate their headspace and their time from a financial review and responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. Now in a private company, we, as an advisory board, um, we do have access to their financials. You know, they share that with us. We Mm -hmm. do have, uh, and we do discuss that. And we also discuss the strategic plan. We discuss all kinds of things that, that to your point, yes, those topics would overlap with a, a board of directors type of role. I think the difference is there's probably a whole other level of financial review and sign off, of and ethics committees, and all those things that some but, boards. But a lot of that doesn't really exist too well in family businesses, I don't think. So that's so, and I want to focus on the I, family business. Like there's, um, you know, they're just they're very unique and different from, I mean, many public companies are still family owned and controlled. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. But But for you're right for the private companies um, where they don't have to go through that extra level of scrutiny, but they may have, you know, audited financial statements and they should have. Mm -hmm. Uh, You asked a question earlier about the size and should I be considering, um, I have a podcast called succession stories Mm -hmm. and you're going to be a guest on my show here coming up in a couple of weeks. And one of the guests that I had in the past works for a uh, private placement company where he helps place CEOs and place board members. And we had a great conversation about this. And I asked him straight up, just like you're suggesting, is there, you know, when should I be thinking about this? And here's kind of a rule of thumb. And, and certainly you'll find exceptions. If the company is, let's say, under 20 million, mm-hmm. that you might see an advisory board. If it's around 40 million, you might start to see a board of directors. Right. A family board can be at any time. Do you think and, that it's typically when there's multiple generations or just multiple family members? It could be either. Okay. And there also could be, <clears throat> excuse me, the history of having that family board in place. Having that history in place is important when there's multi-generational um Entity. So one conversation I had with a CEO was really interesting. He's the fourth generation CEO of Highlights Magazine. And his name is Kent, Kent Johnson. He's he's talked about this story elsewhere, but we talked about it on my show. Mm-hmm. And, and what he had said was he did not want to be part of the family business. He didn't. He, he got his uh, PhD. 
in physics and was working in, in science and, and laboratories. And eventually what got him into the family business and eventually got him into the role was they had an established family board. And it was part of their, I'll call it a tradition, but I think it's the best practice where they had a way of bringing in other young family members as like a junior member of the board. In some companies, it's age-based. I have another um, guest on my show talked about her family and it was at age 16 that they introduce and they have a ceremony and it's a, an important thing to introduce the young person into the family board and what that means. Now, that particular show with Shelly Taylor, um, there's a lot of people involved and it's once a year family meeting. They come in from all over the country or maybe they're zooming in, you know, electronically, but, but nonetheless, um, and back to Kent for a second, because he became part of this family board, he started to understand some of the issues. He wanted, he understood more of the vision and what was important to the company. And then they also had some leadership tragedies. They had some outside uh, hires that were part of the leadership who passed away. There were some tragedies mm. and, and some illnesses. And he realized how, how he was needed and how he could make a difference. And he chose his path and, and joined in as CEO. So his way was via the board first mm-hmm. and then to the management seat. Um, so for some other families, it's like I said, you know, that 16 year old and then gets partic- participating. And for others, it's uh, starting on the shop floor and getting experience and then maybe leaving and going working somewhere else and then coming back. But however a family does it is, is you know, can be unique to them. But one of that, that common theme is um, creating a uh, I'll use the word tradition, but creating a process or creating a, a structure. So it could start with, yeah, it's the two brothers, right? Or it could start with mm-hmm. the two brothers and the spouses and the mom and the dad or whatever your formula is. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but a consistency, I think the going back to the advisory board that I've joined for this construction company, they had a family, um, I call, I guess I'd call it the the family board. And they would meet maybe once a year, but it was very unstructured. And so they realized they needed more structure. And that's why they chose to to formalize an outside advisory board. It's great. It's interesting. And uh, I think boards are really valuable. Let's move away from this topic. But I want to just emphasize that the importance of boards is almost similar to the importance of being in like a CEO peer group. Um, The outside perspectives of other people inform you in maybe the way they're doing business or the way you could be doing business. And it's really helps to open up your ideas around what, what's possible and, um, and also like what's not working and should be working better and, you know, could be addressed. And so I'm a big fan of obviously coaching, peer groups, board of advisors. I've been involved in, in all of the above and including boards of directors. So let's talk about, you know, in your capacity as a Sherpa uh, transitioning companies, um, looking at valuations of companies is probably one of your starting points, I imagine. And then the end point, which is usually what your client is looking for, um, is your goal and your work is to get from the starting point to the end point. So maybe you have some stories or a story around a starting point and an, and an end point. Um, but let's talk about what the process of valuing a company so that you can increase its value over time. What are the, and what are the, some of the value drivers? So I know it's a complex question. We can, Kind of go back and forth. Yeah, on it, we'll build to just, it. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, just to back up a, a hair on on the word Sherpa, that insinuates that I have a process. There's a roadmap, as you're asking about. But also, look, I I want to also acknowledge I don't have all the answers. We got to work collaboratively. Sure. I heard Jonathan, you were on another show and you talked about the boat, right? The business owner advisory team. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely a good role to have on the team. And if I'm that person, then that's quite an honor to be, to be that person. Um, And yeah, starting with business valuations is really important because it's, it kind of 
just begs the question, if, if owners are thinking eventually about a transition, and by the way, they all should, because it, the sad truth is, and the honest truth is all business owners are going to leave their company one day. Mm-hmm. Everyone will. Right. Why not try to control that process and have some influence on that process? So in the valuation process, what we do is we start with, where, what, are we, what are we working with? You know, people say, well, what's my business worth? I have no idea. Okay. Right. So what we, of course, are going to do is look at your financials. Right. We're going to look at most typically the past three years. It might be occasion that we look at four, four years or five years. Everyone asks about COVID. What impact might that have on my valuation? I, what I'm seeing is that the questions are more around, well, how have you come back? What does 2022 look like? What did 21 look like? We've, we've got a little bit more behind us now. It can be an exception year if that was the downturn after you had a strong 19 and then 20 took a dip and now 21's back up. Some companies don't look like that, though. Maybe they, they have stayed relatively flat. Maybe they've continued to decline. So buyers are looking for trends. And is that trend upwards, downwards, flat, somewhere in between? And if we can explain some of those things, then that's helpful. Mm-hmm. I have seen owners take their foot off the gas pedal. You talk about risks. Ultimately, what we are looking for too is having a business that's transferable Mm -hmm. because a business that isn't transferable really has less, it has less value. And why is that? Because transferability translates to risk. If an owner is the is the, you know, in our in our advisory capacity, sometimes we talk about this this term called the hub and spoke where right. the owner is the center of everything. They're the key firefighter. They are the key salesperson. They know everybody's you know, birthdays and the customers by first name. And that's lovely and wonderful. And it probably has helped them through their early years, but that's not really a transferable business when we remove the owner and the business takes a nosedive. Likewise, if during this period of time uh, that we're talking about, which is a three to four year period of time, if our numbers are flat, then we might wonder, has this you know, business plateaued? How are, and, and they might not realize that the owner's actions are going to be harming the value of the company. Maybe they just took their foot off the gas pedal mm-hmm. because they're tired. But it all fits together, right? These puzzle pieces sure. fit together and that end creates the risk. What is, so if, if the, it's all about the owner and they're the ones driving the process, then what will be the growth opportunity for the new owner? So other value drivers include what industry you're in and ultimately what size the business is, because there is a discount applied to smaller companies, again, because of this perception of risk. Sure. We worked out the kinks in the process, the team, the management team, are they surrounded by great people? And if the new owner comes in, can things continue forward or they have to hit a reset button? And the risks associated with all of that. Is there customer concentration? Is there revenue concentration? So if we have more than 20% with one particular customer, we're not contracted for that revenue and it disappears, boom, we've lost you know, a, a good percent of our profit. That's a risk. So we look at different dimensions around the industry that is served too. Different industries do have different growth potential, different growth rates, and also different business models. The types of companies that have a business model that has recurring revenue associated, has more predictability of future cash flow, those businesses also could see a greater valuation. There's a lot of intangibles that can also play into the valuation. When we do valuations for clients, we like to describe it as an art and a science. There's different methodologies for using valuations, how we do it. We have all, I won't go into detail on the different um, financial tools uh, to, to bore people with a finance class here, but at a high level, it's about um, the history, what expenses we might want to look at and saying for a future owner, they might want to make different decisions and we normalize, we normalize things. So we can maybe say in a, this expense would be an add back. We would add that, that back because a different owner might make a different decision. We have to explain all those things. Sure. That's step one is getting organized. And then step two is looking at 
all these other nuances of growth potential, the management team, the risks associated in the business, the processes. I know Jonathan with traction and EOS, companies that are more um, well-organized, they have their processes documented, they have a strategic plan, they're following it, they have level 10 meetings. All of those things go into making that company work well and be able to thrive without the owner. Um, Other intangibles could be the brand, the brand reputation. It could be... It could be the value of the of the customer database, the niche that they're in, the differentiation they have. What's the special sauce? What really makes this business different, unique? What will make it valuable in the eyes of the buyer? It's not that different from from a house. Sure. Why would why would someone who's looking at houses on the same street pay more for that house versus your house? Do you have the finished basement? Do you have that? Uh, you know, all the uh, the Viking appliances that are hard to get these days. It takes three years, you know, all those things. Houses are a lot easier to value for the most part than, uh, I mean, unless they're uh, really unique homes in or in unique uh, communities, um, such as the one that I'm living in right now. Um, very large, unique homes in unique communities. But really, uh, when we're talking about a business, so many businesses are so different. Do you find that your clients want a formal valuation as a starting point, or are they okay with a, something more like a back of the envelope type of valuation? Where, what, what is there? And does it depend upon the size of the company? What, as far as the level, uh, the degree of certainty in terms of valuing? I mean, I mean, ultimately. A business is worth whatever someone will pay for it. And and I'm, I imagine you're surprised often or often enough as to what something in the value in the eyes of a buyer might be worth. It might be worth a lot more or a lot yeah. less. And that's right. And that's and that's how we caveat the exercise of doing evaluation is this is a range of value. Mm-hmm. We create a range of values using different valuation methodologies sure. based on the tax returns and current year information that's been provided to us. And as I mentioned, we're making certain adjustments in conversation with the owners. And then we're looking at the market factors and we're looking at other uh, intangible factors of the business to make this determination. We also look at comps. And to your question about comparatives, is it good to just do a back of the envelope and kind of get a rough estimate? Well, I offer that. And I know, you know, you're familiar with this too, with the value builder system for anyone listening, if they're interested in getting a value builder assessment, I'm happy to do that with them. And one of the things that we can do is a back of the envelope, the value builder assessment takes takes a look at strengths and opportunities and risks in your business and bumps up against a kind of a, a formula based on, you know, some of the adjustments I mentioned, et cetera, and, and net income or EBITDA um, estimates for the past three years. Yep. That's an out of the box number. Now, I also, because I do valuations, I like to compare what I see for comps, I have the detail, right? I like to use less within the last five years. I like to understand what those comps are. Are they roughly in the same size business that I'm looking at? I have more of the detail at my fingertips and that's helpful. And that way um, we're presenting, I think a, a larger, a larger look at this to be, to be, um, to be more objective about it. Mm-hmm. And again, it is a range of value. What's nice to have as a starting point is to say um, a little more definitively what We're never really going to be 100% sure because we won't know until it sells what the market will bear for it. It does help us at the outset also when I'm working with a client and I want to understand what their financial objectives are to know if we have a gap. And I am finding that right now. I do have some clients that their vision is to sell their company for uh, making up these numbers just for conversation. Let's say they want to sell it for $6 million and they're currently valued at two or one. And some of these folks are in their late 50s and there's not a whole lot of runway to, you know, 5X the company. And that is a challenge. And so if there's one key message for the audience and if they're wondering, 
why would I get a valuation now? I've, I'm not anywhere near selling my company. It's not on my mind at all. Great. This is a perfect time to get a valuation. We I should agree. really baseline. Yep. Where are you today? And if they also don't know what their goal is, that's probably another good thing to talk about. And you probably talk about with them, Jonathan, is not only where are they today, but where do they want to be? And then what I like to talk about, you know, in the Sherpa role is let's reverse engineer that. So you asked about stories. I mean, I could talk about a couple of stories, but that's the process in a nutshell is where are you today? Let's do a baselining. Let's understand where you want to be and let's understand the gap. And that gap can be pretty wide. If the gap is not wide, awesome. Let's talk about options. But if it's wide, what are we going to do about it? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'm sure you talk on a strategic level with your clients about planning for growth. I think too many companies, they don't think that strategically. Um, the smaller companies I'm talking about, they are, and I'm not talking about the hyper growth companies. I'm talking about your garden variety construction, uh, two to 10, $20 million company that doesn't see any points of strategic differentiation. And oftentimes their marketing doesn't reflect that much strategic differentiation. And so, uh, do you find that part of the exit planning and and uh, and valuing of the company helps to drive them into more strategic thinking or Absolutely. strategic planning activities? Yeah. Absolutely, it does. Yeah, and I've created a, a process that I call strategic exit value planning. Mm -hmm. It takes the methodology of strategic planning and it layers in these steps of the process that can take a, a good six months to go through. Because we need to get our arms around not only what are the risk factors and the strengths mm -hmm. of, the, of the business today, valuing it as a step, as we talked about, understanding your financial goals as the business owner. And then, hey, by the way, we should also talk about your personal goals because it is emotional, too. And we want to recognize that. And so we look at it as this three-legged stool. So the process uh, also moves us into the what are we going to do about it? You know, what do we need to prioritize and how can we, how can we map this out? And then we're at the starting line. Woo, you know, we did all this yeah. work yeah. and in some ways that gets us to the starting line, but isn't that important to know? Isn't it important to know what could be holding you back? If, uh, if you're setting a course that there's this one uh, gentleman who was on my show and he had established a really great company and they were doing well. Um, but he took it on his own, David Weibel's his name, and David had a, a company called Industry Weapon. Industry Weapon had a business where they were doing uh, digital displays and they were doing, again, they were doing well, but he knew inherently that he might've been missing something and he took it upon himself. We weren't working together, but I loved his story because I love telling people, this is what I help them do. He, over the period of like six to six years, he had conversations with different potential strategic buyers, different private equity groups, and he was just learning all the way. He was learning. What was he learning? He was asking good questions about some of the, the deals that they've done. What do they look for? Size of deal, different criteria. What are elements of the business that are important to them? And in that process, he learned that project revenue was less interesting. And recurring revenue was more interesting. Sure. And they had a strategic pivot. They they needed to really change the business model, needed to change the products and what they offered. And it paid off eventually. I think he had shared, I think his reven recurring revenue wasn't 100%, but it got to, you know, went from zero to like 40%, which was no small feat. Oh, that's, and that's then, great. Yeah. And it became yeah. a, a success story in the exit. And I love that episode. If anyone's going to go search for it, it's, uh, I think, very telling about this example of reverse engineering. He he did that and it paid off for him and he had the luxury of time. It took now, him it took him about 10 years, I would say. So let's talk a little bit more about how to prepare yourself and your business for a transition. And there's really, I think, two types of transitions or, well, at least there's at least two, maybe. But one is is selling, exiting. Um 
one that we're not going to talk about is just shutting the doors. Um, but the other one that I want to talk about is the, you know, is transferring to a, a family member, a next generation family member. And um, do you see a great distinction between the the first where you're going to exit to sell and and then this, the other one where you're going to just transfer and transfer some of the equity, but maybe sell it to your kids or transfer it to your kids? Well, again, if we start at the beginning, which is what's important to you, what are mm-hmm. your goals? What's important to your family? If especially also in context, am I talking to a founder? Am I talking to a next gen leader? Second, third, fourth, fifth on my show, mm-hmm. by the way, I've interviewed generation nine and 10. You wow. can imagine the the difference between talking to Gen 10 versus Gen 1, right? Yes. You can probably just assume a level of emotional difference <laughs> between mm-hmm. those two people. Mm-hmm. So let's assume it's the founder. Now, the founder on what he or she is thinking could be maybe they founded the company with that build to sell in mind, right? For the book for John from John Warlow. Maybe mm-hmm. they've always intended to sell it. And so helping them get there is going to be a probably quote unquote easier conversation than someone who's thinking, well, my brother and sister are in the business now, and my son might be in the business. And I'm thinking about the next gen and my family. So we have to talk through all of those things. And I think the main thing is what are the options? What are the pros and cons of each of those exit options? And there might be other, what I call exit channels to consider based on what your goals are. So if your goals are more around legacy, sustainability for the future, back to Highlights Magazine, Gen 4, absolutely, he envisions that this company is not necessarily it's about him, but it's about the future. And he's all about making sure this company is sustainable um, and, and maintaining their legacy. Now, whether or not they stay a family held company, I don't know. Um, the culture and the mission for them is very, very clear. For others, they are more open and they might say, well, I don't, I don't really know. I kind of want to lay out what are all my options are and I want to explore them. So for example, yeah, I might sell to a third party. That third party might be my management team. So uh, it's, in, it's not related, but it's related, right? It's not blood, but it's related. These are insiders. They know the business really well. Um, sometimes a sale might be contemplated more so as a skip generation. Well, we want to have this generation in, we want to, you know, they're, they're 10 years old right now. We want to give them another 10 years. We want to put mentors in above them, rise them up and see what happens. All those things need to be on the table because again, if we have time on our side and we have the luxury of creating a roadmap, maybe some of those options don't pan out. What if junior doesn't have the skill set, doesn't have the wherewithal to want, and they they don't even want the business. I'm seeing that more and more. It's very common. Junior just just does not want the business, and a lot of times, senior is disappointed. They thought junior would want it, but then junior's in the business, and junior realizes they don't want it. So it could again be this: Hey, option one, we want to we want to. Uh, we want to create a succession plan and ownership plan with junior, but now we got to go to plan B. We want to sell the company because to a third party, because we we're not finding that this family next gen situation is going to work out. Another option that's worth looking at if the goals are around maintaining a sense of community, maintaining a sense of um uh, that we want the company employees to benefit is an ESOP. An ESOP is a is an option for larger companies. It's not an option for a lot of small companies. I think generally speaking, about two to two and a half million of EBITDA a year is a roughly the size of a company that might might take a look at something like this. It's very common in construction. It's common in professional services like engineering services, mm-hmm. accounting firms. Um, I see it here locally. We have a window manufacturer. So it could be an industrial type of company too, where the family maintains an ownership stake. They might sell a piece of it and they're selling it essentially um, to uh, and employees are benefiting from the, from the growth of and performance of the business. 
That is less known. Um, putting it out there just again as another option. Sure. Most of us are familiar with selling to a third party and they kind of conceptually understand that. And ESOP feels a little more foreign and, and a little more daunting. And I get that. Uh, so if people are interested in learning more about that, I'm happy to be a resource. I myself am not an expert, but I have. We have had guests on the show who yeah. are ESOP experts. Exactly. So. We yeah. want to point them in the right direction for, right. to direct them to. And that's and I'm happy to do that, too. But um, yeah, and I think, you know, selling versus the family is it, it's tricky for a lot of the reasons we mentioned. Maybe we want Junior to have it, but Junior, again, you know, doesn't have the skills. Either Junior's not interested, they don't have mm-hmm. the skills mm-hmm. or it's a time sensitivity where we just can't wait that long to see what happens. There are a lot of things that happen that are hard to explain you know when we come in as outside experts so to speak uh advising them with our processes i think sometimes we're surprised by what uh, the ultimate outcome is um i was approached recently by uh, a guest on my show who was offered uh, to sell his business at a multiple of about 15x which for a small company uh six location uh, facility business um pr- that was probably an astounding amount of money 40 multiple of, of of ebitda yes that is a pretty high multiple what industry was it in I, i'd rather not say because he was okay. a guest on the show and so we're gotcha. gonna keep that quiet but okay. he wasn't really sure what he was going to do uh, because he didn't know what he would do if he sold the business. And so he was leaning towards not selling it. And I said, you should never live look a gift horse in the mouth like that. It's not often that you'd get an offer like that. There's a lot of consolidation going on in your industry. You need to think long, hard and twice about this, because if you want, you could go out and do it all over again. And if you're really that passionate about the industry, um, or you could be an advisor, you could set up a family fund, you know, uh, you, you could be philanthropic, you could move, you could, you, I mean, it's a game changer when you're making that kind of money. And yet, uh, not everyone is ready for uh, for that transition. And not everyone knows what the outcome is going to be. And so that was my my point in this earlier part. We come in as advisors and to us, it looks clear, it looks black and white, but it's not. I mean, uh, it's, yeah. it could be very a very different color than what we thought of. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a sense of remorse when a great offer goes by, you pass it up and then yep. you try in the future to get that same offer and it doesn't come your way. It can be very disappointing. It is really hard. Some folks try to time the market. Yes. And that's difficult too. you know, do I sell at a peak? Do I try to avoid the trough? There's maybe a seasonality to your business or or you're in a certain industry like oil and gas and that rides different waves right now. Sure. Oil and gas is pretty hot. Sure. Other years, not so much. So sure. do you. And the other part of it is for business, many business owners have gotten accustomed to a certain lifestyle. Maybe they are running certain expenses through the business because they Again, they can choose to do so. I'm not saying it's not allowable, but they're doing it and they're reducing their tax obligations. That's also some of the reason why we do these discretionary expense addbacks because a new owner might make different decisions. The other thing I would say about the cash, you know, the cash coming out of the business is some owners sort of treat it that way where it's a nice, it's a nice flow of income to them. And they pay themselves a decent salary. They pay themselves a bonus and they're entitled to do that. Uh, But it can be difficult if you're looking to then sell and then you calculate what are my net proceeds and that annuity is no longer there when you sell the business. I, I came across this about a year ago where I had a buyer that was interested in a company that had really good contracts and there was a good interest from the buyer. He was a definitely an interested buyer and he had a good track record. The seller didn't want to sell, even though the valuation I think was fair, right? We have to have a fair, that's a key word, a fair offer. This was a fair offer. However, they the owner said, I, I'm going to pass because 
I won't be able to take out, you know, I won't be able to match my lifestyle with this offer. The tricky part about that, Jonathan, is the owner was in his 70s. So at some point, what's that going to look like for him? I mean, it's it's a difficult, it's a very difficult situation. And I, you know, completely get it. But that's also very common I where think so. it, it the, the business it, is, is is the providing this level, this lifestyle that we get so accustomed to. And you're creating the value in what you're doing, but at some point it's going to end. And when it does end, I know you don't want to talk about liquidation, but that is common where the business just closes. Yeah. And, uh, and some of it is, I guess some of it's ego driven where they don't want to take a, what they'll consider a low ball offer. They'd rather close it than sell and, and then get a low ball offer. And yeah. it's sad. Yeah. All right. Well, like this is all the t- all the time we have for today to talk about this subject. I'm sure we could go on for hours. You're a fountain of knowledge, and uh, your company is small dot big. Um, how do people find you, Laurie? The URL is small dot big dot com. Yes, and they also could go to meetlauriebarkman.com for a little shortcut to to schedule some time with me. But if they want to also connect with me on LinkedIn, would love to talk to anyone who's interested in doing an assessment of the business or evaluation and starting at the start, like we talked about. Sounds good. Awesome. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. You know the drill. If you like this show, you listen to the end, um, please tell others. Give us a five-star rating review on your listening podcast app of choice. Uh, share subscribe, and stay tuned for future episodes. Thanks a lot. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Thank you for joining us on the Disruptive Successor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, review, and share with a friend who would benefit from the message. If you're interested in picking up a copy of my book, Disruptive Successor, go to DisruptiveSuccessor.com.